how weird is it that this next episode of my podcast is a cliffhanger for me too? I've been like, Katie, I have to go do the podcast. I don't have time to keep watching Criminal Minds with you. Did I tell you her cat is named after Prentice on Criminal Minds? Prentice, yes. So anyway, Katie's my kid, if you do not know. And I told her to leave me alone so I could get this done. And before I dive into part two of the Smith Slayings investigation focuses on several people, I have to share two things with you. One is I, well, it's two, two of the same thing. I think I might have mentioned before that I sometimes have really intense dreams after doing these podcasts for some reason. This, and it was happening with blogging too. Whenever I was spending time focused a lot, uh, especially on my dad, if I was going back in ta- in history and thinking, bringing up memories and going, and I'm really visual. So a lot of times when, even when I'm talking to you, I'm, my eyes are closed because that's how I remember. So of course, last night I had nightmares. And it was super bizarre because in the nightmares, and I think it had a lot to do with what we covered last time or in the last two podcasts with my dad having uh, some shady deals and maybe not always being on the up and up. I had a dream that both my dad and Charlene were arrested. They were arrested by the feds and they were both, um, Charlene was supposed to be arraigned or something on a Sunday in Washington, D.C. And my dad was supposed to be arraigned on the following Monday in D.C., but then suddenly it morphed into this very, very bizarre hybrid of their wrists and ankles being bound. So they were in handcuffs um, and ankle cuffs, ankle bracelets, whatever they go. Why would they have a different name? I don't know. Ankle bracelets and handcuffs. Okay. Anyway, they were shackled and then it morphed into them being victims in in the way we know that they were tied up. So talk about letting your subconscious run amok. That was, it was messed up. It was one of those mornings this morning where I had to get up and just, I actually went for a walk this morning just to clear my head because that one just felt weird. And I have a feeling it's gonna, you know that feeling when you have like a shadow, your dream is a shadow when you get back into bed and it kind of comes back just because you're back in the same location. I better not have that shadow tonight. That's why I hope telling you we'll get rid of some of it. The other dream that I got a big epiphany on, I have this dream. I haven't had it lately, but it is. A, it was a recurring dream I think I had for 20 or 30 years. Um, well, I mean, I've had it the whole time. So, okay, the whole time. But it wasn't f- that frequent, but it was a recurring dream. And in this dream, Dad and Charlene were at this house I'd never seen before. It was up on a hill absolutely up on a hill. And I was like, oh my God, you're here. It it reminds me of, um, we hear the stories about people who have lost a limb or something and they have that phantom pain, like the limb is still there, especially people who lost it, you know, later in life, not that much later in life, but enough where they know what the limb felt like and then they don't have it anymore. This dream has that phantom feeling, like I've known that they were still alive for the longest time, but I just didn't even know where to look for them. I didn't know how to find them. And so in this dream, it's always about this house on a hill, and they've been living there this whole time. And it occurred to me, duh, after reading um, the last, the first part, part one of these articles, how they were going to build a house on the hill in Santa Paula, that must be what lodged in my subconscious at some point, and why I, my brain just wants them to be in this house that I don't quite know where it is, but when I get there, I find them and they're just regular. It's funny because they don't age in my dream. They're still exactly how I remember them, almost pretty much that last night. Kind of, yeah, kind of that last night that I saw them the week before they were killed. 
they just absolutely con look contemporary with their ages of 43 and 33, not ever aging. So I, I, I'm sure you guys have had dreams about people you've lost and had these kind of weird subconscious things. And I'm probably oversharing, sorry, but it's really bizarre how our mind does these things. And so I wanted to share that with you because we're going to get into it again here and learn some things about and, and remind me of some things and learn some things about Lyman and Charlene. And uh, it'll be interesting um, to see what this brings up. I hope I don't have any more dreams, though. Not tonight. It's, it's weird enough the kind of dreams we're having just being sequestered and shut in our homes. This is this is some weird times we're living through as it is. Okay, so we finished last part one, which was the um, which was the big uh, Smith's murder. Police closing in, Greg Zoroya and Rita Beamish, and then uh, had the subhead of murder of Ventura couple filled with intrigue. So now this is part two of the two part series, and it's a big series. I mean, this is going to take me a little bit. Uh, there's a lot that they've written here, and I'm, of course, because I can't shut up. You know, I'm gonna. Uh, get lost in parts of this as it is. Also, I have to tell you that the Star Free Press at this time, October 13th, 1980, sold for 20 cents. 24 pages of newspaper sold for 20 cents. And we took up our fair share of the column here. Okay, here we go. Smith Slayings investigation focuses on several people. I think the Ventura police are grabbing at straws. Ventura defense attorney Paul Clinton's criticism was aimed at the department's investigation of what if what is probably the city's most notorious murder case, the bludgeon slayings of prominent attorney Lyman R. Smith and his wife, Charlene. Clinton said he thinks the police consider his client, Ventura real estate agent Joe Alsip Jr., a suspect in the double murder. We may be facing a trial for murder, Clinton explained. But so far, no one has been arrested for the murder of Smith, 43, and his attractive 33-year-old wife, Charlene, during the seven months of the investigation. Although sources close to the investigation have said police have a definite suspect, police still officially declare they have no suspects. They will have maintained that official line since the bodies were discovered March 16th by Smith's 12-year-old son, Gary. So why would a well-known criminal defense attorney make a public statement about his client's innocence when no one has officially said this, his client is a suspect? Oh, how interesting. There, sorry, just a brief aside. How interesting that this defense attorney, before this man is charged, is saying that he is not guilty. And then here in Sacramento, we have the defense team basically saying, oh, our guy is guilty, but I guess you're going to try him, aren't you? Because you want the death penalty. Defense attorneys are an interesting breed. I'm going to see if I can get an interview with one because they're just some very, very interesting people. My dad was one. Let's be clear. My dad was a defense attorney too. Okay. He said, uh, he is said not to be the prime suspect police are looking at now. A skittish Alsip is convinced, however, I am a suspect. He, sorry, I, one more detraction. It's interesting that they, the way this is said, a skittish Alsip, of course, that's a reporter characterizing someone, which is what I always have a fit about when they characterize D'Angelo is like frail. No, he's thinner. He's not frail. You don't know if he's frail. It's interesting that um, Greg and Rita decided to call him skittish. I wonder what they don't describe why he was skittish or what about him led them to believe he was skittish. But okay, we'll just take that little editorial comment here. A skittish Alsip is convinced, however, I am a suspect. But he maintains that the evidence he has gathered through his defense attorney and the hiring of a private investigator clearly proves his innocence. 
We're not ready to charge anybody with the commission of the crime at this point, said Ventura Police Chief Ray McLean. He and other law enforcement officials would not comment on ALSIP or anyone else as a possible suspect. But there have clearly been suspects even before ALSIP. The slain attorney and his effervescent young wife were both well-liked and widely known. After their bodies were discovered, telephone tips were inevitable and dozens of people pointed a suspicious finger at a man with whom Mrs. Smith had been romantically involved. The autopsy revealed that the Smiths were killed on a, th- on a Thursday evening, that's weird, weird way to write that, were killed on a Thursday evening and that their bodies had lain undetected until Smith's fun- son found them on Sunday. Police were told Mrs. Smith had visited this man after lunch on the Thursday she died, coming home to dinner with her husband late that afternoon. Given the obvious angle of jealousy, one source said, in the beginning of the investigation, one could not ask for a better suspect. But the man had an alibi and passed a polygraph test. However, he is an ex-law enforcement officer who is also a polygraph expert. We need music. Dun-dun-dun. There is some dispute over whether a polygraph expert could fool the machine. Police could not account for the whereabouts of Smith's daughter, Jenny, 18, the evening of the Smiths were killed. Miss Smith freely admits that she and her father didn't get along. Oh, good. Now I'm going to talk. Oh, my God. What am I going to say? Okay, here we go. Our personalities clash a lot, but I'm told we're a lot alike, she said during an interview in May. My dad didn't treat me very well, she said recently. Impishly impertinent toward the investigator's efforts, she could remember thinking to herself while she was connected to the polygraph, oh God, this is so dragnet. Police told her she passed the test. Would it be wrong for me to tell you guys that I tried to uh, not cooperate on the test, that I actually did lie and the test is not that hard to beat at all. Maybe that means I'm a pathological liar. Oh my God, I probably shouldn't admit this. But honestly, the test is not, if you are able to control how you think, it's just not that hard to beat. Uh, so I don't, uh, I sound like an asshole. Okay, sorry, excuse me. I'm going to come back to the story now. It did seem very dragnet. That's why I used that picture in the in, in the blog. Okay, let's go back to the story now. Oof, you guys are learning too much about me. Among the families in the expensive Clearpoint neighborhood where where the Smiths lived is a couple whose mentally handicapped son was questioned by the police. In questioning him, detectives were more interested in simply eliminating him from consideration. He was never considered a viable suspect. In the course of the questioning, the boy who was hypnotized, oh, I'm sorry, in the course of the questioning, the boy was hypnotized, his mother confirmed. I'm finding this incredibly odd. All right, let's keep going. But there was one thing police learned that assured the young man's name would be removed from the police list as students as po- of possible suspects. The Smiths were bound hand and foot when they were killed, although the autopsy indicated inexplicably that they were bound after death. Yeah, pretty inexplicable if you ask me. Police found that the young man in question could not tie a knot. Well, there you have it. Okay. Chief, I don't think the kid had anything to do with it, but that's just so weird. Said Chief McLean, we have ruled out some people, but there is no indication they have completely ruled out Joel Alsip. The information that led police to Alsip, however, also led them in many other directions. At the heart of the diversity of the investigation was Lyman Smith's appetite for wealth and status. In the last several years of his life, Smith was never content with his income level, according to another friend and client, Coco Corral. Oh, here we go. Coco Corral. So... 
there, so I can't say a lot about Coco Corral because I don't want him to hurt my family, but um, Coco was, had a reputation for being involved in, let's say, a subculture that procured money in non-legal ways. That's a good way of saying it, right? So uh, Coco, yes, was was definitely, I think, a suspect at one time. And he's also the, the client of my dad's who provided my dad with a free leased car every year. And I have no reason. Coco was always really nice to us, but he was just uh, apparently shady AF. Here we go. Go back to Coco. He never made enough money, Corral said. Lyman had a lot of ambition, said Superior Court Judge Stephen Stone, a close friend. One of the ambitions he had was to be financially successful with these pots of gold at the end of the rainbow he'd put together. Despite earlier involvement in a number of community activities, as well as political campaigns, Smith's interest shifted to financial investments by the early 1970s. While still early 1970s, okay, so that's when mom was trying to get the divorce and he didn't want her to have a good attorney. Hmm, mom might be right. He might have been hiding money. Okay, while still keeping his law practice, he began to concentrate on money-making ventures. I think Lyman, more and more as the years went by, wanted to become an entrepreneur, said Smith's friend, State Senator Omar Raines, Democrat from Ventura. He seemed to be moving himself into more and more capital ventures. Lyman was real interested in investing in anything he could invest in, said Santa Paula rancher Liesel Lee Cole, who was the principal owner in a 400-acre property near Steckel Park in Santa Paula. Smith had paid a portion of the 10% interest in the property he sought and wanted to secure for his children. In the Wait a minute. Who wanted to secure for? Smith had paid a portion of the 10% interest in the property he sought. Uh, I think that Mr. Cole sought and wanted to secure for his children. In the early 1970s, another one of his clients, uh, he became involved, became, through another one of his clients, Smith became involved in a trucking venture transporting food to the workers in the Alaska pipeline. Santa Paula businessman Roscoe Morris, another of Smith's clients, recalled how he and the attorney had planned to build a social club in Thousand Oaks in 1975, but that idea was rejected by the city council. Holy smokes, my dad was doing so many things. Okay, but all of these interests paled before the one most engrossing and, outside the, of his law practice, time-consuming business ventures in Smith's life. If anything illustrated Smith's propensity for reaching out and trying something different, it was Maverick International, a cargo airline. Police sought out one of Smith's business partners in the airline, Santa Paula rancher A.E. Bud Sloan, for permission to examine a massive file on Maverick. The world's greatest bullshippers Smith and his partners had printed across the fuselage of their aircraft. Each of the company's two Boeing 707s was a flying corral that could transport 98,000 pounds of dairy cattle per load. Ostensibly, destinations were anywhere in the world, but primarily they flew to the Middle East and Iran. Pregnant heifers for the Shah of Iran was how an Eastern newspaper described the effort. <laughs> oh my God. I just, this still, I still blows my mind. Now that, now, okay, I'm a kid, right? I don't understand what's going on. My, holy smokes. There was a lot of politics going on at this time. This is, this is pre-Reagan. This is crazy town. So, and they're shipping cows to the Shah. Okay, the airline was formed in late 1977 by Smith, pilot Daniel E. Hood, who could get aircraft, Canadian Edward Pegram, with necessary business connections for livestock. 
they had it all set up. All that was needed was money, and that's where we came in, said Elsie Sloan, Bud's wife. I trusted Lyman. I wish you'd emphasize that, Sloan said in a recent interview. However, his lawyers recently filed suit against the Smith estate, demanding $5.4 million as a result of Maverick's demise. With Sloan's 18,000-acre Mendocino County ranch as collateral, the partnership secured the first $1 million and later an additional $1.5 million for Maverick. They formed what would be the world's largest shipper of live cattle by air. For a year and a half, the idea worked. Flying out of Stewart Airport in Newburgh, New York, where the company was headquartered, Maverick shipped Holstein heifers, calves, Brahma bulls, and even horses. Perhaps most intriguing was the airline's Iranian connection. English auditor William Bartfield, who has sifted through Maverick business records, said the trade was promoted by the Iranian government. I understand that the air freight was paid by the Iranian government as part of a subsidence, subsidence plan to bring in breeding cattle from the U.S., on its return, the airline brought back flowers and vegetables from Israel and automobile parts and shoes from Italy, Bartfield said. I do know there's pictures of my dad in some of these places. He went to some of these places to, with, I didn't know he was bringing back shoes from Italy. Who knew? With the toppling of the Shah and his government in January 1979 and the subsequent closing of the Tehran airport, Maverick was permanently crippled. According to East Coast newspapers, the weeks that followed were ruinous for the airline. Payroll checks bounced, dozen employees were laid off, would-be foreign investors failed to come to terms, one of the least jets, least jets was repossessed, and the airline was forced into a costly shift of operations. Hood bailed out, turning his 25% share and leaving, turning in his 25% share and leaving the company. For Smith and Pegram, this it was a desperate time as they fought to salvage the airline. Smith's efforts meant endless trips to the East Coast for three or four days at a time. Those trips stretched to 10-day periods, and finally he stayed for two or three weeks during one stint. Charlene resented this airline thing because he was gone so much, said Mrs. Sloan. He worked night and day. Night and day and put on a lot of hours, Pegram explained. But the problems were overwhelming. We were basically undercapitalized from the from the start, or it would have still been going very well, Pegram said. Fuels and maintenance cost us very dearly. But Bartfield cited in addition to the extravagance and unnecessary expenditures expenditures of both the business and personal personal nature by Pegram, Hood and Smith. Okay, I just bungled that paragraph. So they were undercapitalized. They didn't have enough money to run the business, but also, but Bartfield cited, in addition, extravagance and unnecessary expenders of both the business and personal nature by by Pegram, Hood, and Smith. It's a weird sentence, but it sounds like uh, people were taking money out of the coffers for things they shouldn't have spent money on. Let's go back to that. I have no comment on that on extravagance on my own part, said Pegram. I really don't agree whatsoever. Maverick was a good business deal and it could have made money, said Bartfield. In fact, it grossed $16.9 million during its existence, but the airline cost $20 million to run. It was not run as a tight, efficient business, Bartfield said. Okay. It's so funny because my dad actually did teach me about money and I know that if you need twenty and you're only making $16.9, you're doing it wrong. Let's continue. One of the things that corporate businesses in America must do is pay corporate withholding taxes, Bartfield explained. Lyman knew that the Maverick withholding taxes hadn't been paid for an eight-month period over a quarter of a million dollars. In fact, court records in Ventura indicate that the IRS has 
has held Hood responsible as a past officer of the company for $110,000 in trust fund taxes. No records have been located regarding the IRS billing of the other company members. Okay, so I might have to do a correction here because I thought my dad had withheld the taxes from his law partners, paying payroll taxes for his law partners, but it looks like I may have misunderstood and the withholding was for Maverick, which is for a hell of a lot more money, a quarter of a million dollars. Holy smokes. Okay, so 250000 There we go. Here we go. So let's see. Ventura court records indicate that the ex-Maverick official has joined the growing number of claimants on the Smith estate. Hood is demanding 896000 for breach of the contract he signed when he left the airline. I looked at Smith straight in the eye and said, Lyman, you knew. You must have known this was wrong, Bartfield recalled. He had some sort of cock and bull story, but he was very, very convincing. I suppose he found the technique, that technique of persuasiveness works, said Bartfield. I never knew anybody to deter Lyman from what he wanted to do, said Bartfield. He had a tremendous will. A Santa Barbara attorney for Hood said the pilot was not in California at the time of the Smith's murders. Hood has been working for a Jordanian airline and living there, the attorney said. Police interest in Pegram extended no further than a single telephone call to the Canadian with routine questions about Smith, Pegram said. And Sloan? The story goes that when a polygraph technician proceeded to strap a respirator sleeve around Slow's bicep to measure his physical... Oh, God, I'm botching this. I'm sorry, guys. The story goes that when a polygraph technician proceeded to strap a respirator sleeve around Slow's bicep to measure his physical response on a lie detector machine, the sleeve could barely stretch around the man's arm. He is a physically huge man whose strength through his arms and chest is evident. The polygrapher said, did you kill Smith and his wife? Sloan said, hell no, the burly Sloan recalled. And there were other questions, but in the end, police assured the rancher they didn't consider him a suspect. It made me hot to see, think someone would go and sneak and kill him, said Sloan. Referring to Smith's own sturdy build, Sloan said, if he had had a chance that morning when they killed him, there would have been a hell of a fight. I would like to get a hold get a hold of that guy. Wait, I would like to get a hold of the guy that fixed them. He wouldn't want to worry about going to trial. I'll guarantee that. Oh, Mr. Sloan, we have someone for you to meet. He's right here in good old Sacramento. Smith was ready to jump in and get the corporation with us. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped that because I was just thinking of having Mr. Sloan go beat up D'Angelo. That would be kind of satisfying. Before the birth of Maverick in January of 1977, Three Ventura businessmen got together and decided to divide a fourth to a proposed development company. The three, building contractor Charles Gilliard, real estate agent Joe Alsip, and civil engineer Bob Placencia contacted Smith. Smith was ready to jump in and get that corporation with us, called, recalled Gilliard. He said, you want to check? Just like that, Gilliard said. Smith eagerly purchased a quarter share of what became Gap Development, thereby adopting another interest that would share space in his already cluttered business responsibilities. For the next two years, the company struggled to make the name, a name for itself as it purchased and sold property, built condominiums, and created a mobile home development. But in late 1979, things with the company began to sour. Disagreements over tax problems with the IRS, I really don't like playing with Uncle Sam, Placencia said, and disagreements over business management caused a split with Placencia and Smith on one side and Gilliard and Alsip on the other. There were many things we, Smith and Placencia, were disappointed with. 
Management was one of them, Placencia said. They broke away and together Smith and Placencia formed San Juan Enterprises, their own land development company. Placencia later said prospects for their new effort looked good. Then, in mid-March, Smith and his wife were murdered. Alsip's first hint that he was a suspect came shortly after police questioned him, placed him on a polygraph and under hypnosis. I'm feeling a little jealous right now that they didn't hypnotize me. I just, okay, being an ass. Let me get back to it. Sorry. Please, no, that's me just being an ass. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Through hypnosis, police explored the sequence of events of an evening that Alsip spent with the Smiths shortly before their death. At first, there was some confusion whether that evening was the Thursday night Lemon and Charlene were murdered. Alsip had driven to the Clearpoint area to visit Carl and Charlotte Marchetti, who lived directly behind the Smiths. The Marchettis weren't home, so Alsip walked over to see, if the, to see the Smiths and visit there until the Marchettis returned. I'm sure I'm butchering their last name. Not Italian at all. Sorry. At first we gave the mention that was a great first we gave the information that it was Thursday. Of course it's contradicted with what Joe said, said Mrs. Marchetti. I just said it differently. Alsip maintained that it was Wednesday night when he visited the Marchettis and the Smiths. Thursday night he was bowling with his family. The Marchettis later agreed Alsip's visit was on Wednesday night. Then Placencia further complicated the chronology by telling the police the Smiths were having dinner with him and his wife Wednesday night. I could have sworn it was Wednesday night, he said. The final proof was when the Marchettis checked a will they had witnessed be- being notarized the night Alsip came to visit them. The notarization took place Wednesday, Mrs. Marchetti said. The police checked. Everything is fine, she said. After Alsip took the polygraph, police indicated he had passed it. Shortly after he had taken the polygraph and was told he had passed, Gap Corporate Lawyers, that's the company, the development company, corporate lawyers heard rumors that the police still suspected Alsip. They, the corporate attorneys, took the ball and went for it, and they didn't really feel that they were the ones I should be using, Alsip said. So he hired Clinton, that's the defense attorney that we talked about at the beginning of this article. He hired Clinton, who recommended he hired a private investigator. Alsip's friends and associates were being questioned, and the police talked to his wife. District attorney's investigators perused through gap business files, said Gilliard. The police damaged this Alsip's reputation, and a lot of friends won't talk to him anymore, he said. I'm not even sure the gap phones are ta- aren't tapped. I don't give a damn, said Gilliard, who also said he'd been followed at one time. Alsip claims he's been harassed by the police, though, though McLean denies that's happened. Gilliard further, further said the pall of suspicion has racked Alsip emotionally. Consequently, Alsip has dropped out of Gap in the past few months. So I guess he left the partnership. Alsip said he was also emotionally wrought because some per, of personal and family problems. That, the police suspicion, was like the straw that broke the camel's back, said Alsip. Up to the point in time I came into this case, Alsip did everything in the world he could to cooperate with the police, said Attorney Clinton. Perhaps too much, he said. For example, I would not have let him submit to hypnosis and polygraph, Clinton said. Clinton has met with the detectives twice, and when they asked him for the results of both examinations, they refused, he said. They're even very hush-hush about all the details, he said. I don't think they will arrest Joe because he's not. there's not enough evidence based on anything I'm aware of, said Clinton. But it remains to be seen whether police will be able to close it on the prime suspect they're said to be investigating. They are currently awaiting results of the sophisticated technical tests of trace evidence they have gathered. Huh. I wonder what that trace evidence was. We might find that out in the prelim. 
Meanwhile, overall investigation of the double, ho- double homicide appears to have wound down since the initial flurry of activity. From a peak of 18 investigators from various agencies working full-time on the case immediately after the bodies were found, activity has decreased to where one or two detectives will make a Smith case contact between other investigations. But McLean said he is neither concerned nor disappointed in the pace of the investigation has taken. We have vigorously pursued the investigation to the extent that the investigation warrants it, he said. Sometimes an investigation is like the artist's painting, he explained. He spends a great deal of energy and then sits back and takes a look at it. Today marks seven months to the day that the Smiths were murdered. So isn't that, it's uh, super, super weird. And it's really cool. Stephen Stone, who was my dad's law partner, did send a letter into the, a letter to the editor about this story. And he said, Dear Rita, I read your articles concerning Lyman and Charlene Smith, and I'd like to compliment you on the thorough, analytical, and sensitive manner in which you wrote them. I believe you've demonstrated in that very difficult task the highest standards of your profession. Such excellence should not go unnoticed. See, classy guy. He's Judge Stephen Stone. I think he's Judge Stephen Stone retired now, but uh, he's a great guy. So that takes us, what, what this does with this article is now that we know It's so clear to me now. It has been a long time since I've read these. It is no wonder there was so much on the boards and so much talk about my dad and Charlene and the intrigue and the twists and the turns. I mean, there's more here than I even understood. I think when I read this one as when I was young, not quite a kid, but you know, young person, very young person, I didn't really understand. I wouldn't even have understood the difference between business and being an entrepreneur, investments and venture capitalists. Now, because I work in Silicon Valley and I've worked for for venture capitalists, I get all of this, but I didn't have this context. And he certainly wasn't teaching his kids about any of this. In fact, this was all happening when I was super active in high school. So it makes a lot of sense to me that I didn't understand what he was doing in business at that time. And then they talked about he was traveling a lot. He wasn't around. We didn't see him very much. Typical thing was we'd go to pizza with him on Thursday nights. And then eventually that kind of fell apart because we all became much more involved in our lives as teenagers. But it was pizza and he was always late. And my mom said it was her most hated night of the week because we'd always end, we were hungry and waiting for him and we'd end up squabbling before he would get us. So it was, you know, poor mom. She probably wanted to go out and have a good time. I don't know what that would be, but you know, poor mom. And so that was always a crapshoot or more like a cluster. And then if sometimes, if we were lucky or I guess lucky or whatever, however that worked, um, he would pick us up after he was done golfing, which is why I remember him as the smell of uh, his cologne and sweat and cigar smoke because he would his car would just reek of those things. And if and we went with him after golfing, then we would um, typically just go to his house for dinner, that sort of thing. If we could go to the club with him, if I don't know how that worked with golfing. I think Charlene would pick us up actually. Then we'd go to the pool and that was pretty fun. And then he would get done golfing, but he would always spend too much time on the 19th hole, which is the bar. And I know that would piss Charlene off. So then we'd inevitably end up going home in some kind of a fight with between them. So there, there was that. But these are just lovely memories, aren't they? Oh my God. Okay. So like, okay, here's what's going to happen next. Okay. We are going to fast forward in the next 
in the next chapter, we're going to fast forward a, a year because all of a sudden there's going to be an arrest. And now this is what I wanted to get to, especially while we're in this lull before we get back to the real deal with D'Angelo and everything. I did talk with Cheryl Temple or emailed with Cheryl Temple this last week. I'd ask her if I could get copies of the demurrer, demurrer, they say it though, is they blur the R's together. If I could get a copy of that, and then the that was from the defense, then I wanted to get a copy of the prosecution's response to that, which I think that says, I think a demurrer is like uh, trying to dismiss the case. I, I got to look at it more closely. So we'll have that, and we'll have the prosecution's response to that, and we'll also have the prosecution's response to the motion to dismiss. So I'm going to get into that legal stuff soon, but I figured while it's still kind of quiet and uh, we're still all sheltering in place, I thought it would be really interesting to go through this preliminary hearing that happened in Ventura with this arrest. And there is a lot of juicy stuff here, and I suspect it could take us a few days. So I will probably be podcasting again on Tuesday. I hope you enjoyed the last two nights and got to hear the secret Easter egg in yesterday's episode. You would have had to really, really, really listen to get that one. And when I say really listen, I mean all the way to the end. So uh, that's where we are, and you'll have more from me very soon as we turn the corner into the November of 1981. Thanks, you guys, for listening. Please rate it, share it, spread the word. I really appreciate it. Let's play some music on our way out. <laughs>